beautiful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Man, thanks, Tim. All right. Well, today, uh, Doug and myself, we're going to be talking today uh, as we continue this whole Common Ground series. And we're getting into sort of now in the, this part of the series and, and going forward, we're kind of digging into the issues maybe even more specifically. And today, our, our whole issue that we're talking about is life, death, and the defenseless. Uh, we've even seen some stories recently of one of a, the first minor to be euthanized in Europe uh, happened this past month. We saw, uh, you know, we've just seen skyrocketing, catastrophic abortion rates. Uh, we also, I just even heard this morning a story of this week of uh, a young autistic kid being beat up because he was taking pictures of people. And, you know, these people thought he was, like, different, you know, and he was beat up for that. And so we want to talk about these issues today. We want to talk about the unborn. We want to talk about end-of-life issues. And we also want to talk about the defenseless, which we would say are vulnerable people who, um, you know, are not necessarily valued by our society. And uh, a couple things with this as we begin. One is we aren't specifically talking about your situation, your case. Maybe you have a decision that you've made that you regret, or there's something that's taken place in your life. We, we aren't here to bring judgment upon you as we discuss these things. But what we do want is that as a church, as this community of people who are followers of Jesus— we don't want to shy away from these hard issues. We want to, you know, step in and, and, and really dig into them and find what is the common ground. What, you know, where can we find a common ground on the basis of God's word and what we would think and what we would value. Uh, a couple uh, caveats as we consider all of that too when we think of this whole issue of life as we're going to talk about it today is that there is no way that we can talk about everything that's related to this issue. We're going to try and hit three of these huge parts of this issue. But, you know, there's all sorts of other things that I think Christians should have thoughtful and biblical responses to, and not just because you think you should think a certain way about it, but there's all sorts of issues like even war or the death penalty or defining personhood or when a life begins or gun violence, suicide, gene selection, kind of crazy stuff that uh, could begin, um, you know, even issues that have to do with fertility um, medication processes and all of that, that we can't possibly cover all of it. There's going to be an amazing uh, man coming this Wednesday night that we'll talk more about who's going to help us dig more into these issues. But what we can do is that we have common ground we have common ground on this, that we love and value life enough to do something. All right. Absolutely. This is going to be a, an interesting topic, and it's going to be a lot at one time. So have you ever had a drink of water from a fire hose? Yes? No? Well, it'll be a little bit like that. So it's going to be a lot at you at one time. And it's a uh, it's really just an easy topic, life and all that kind of stuff, so we'll be able to breeze right through it, no problem. Um, no, it's pretty difficult, uh, and it's hard to figure out how do we do this? How do we talk about this? So let's just begin with talking about life. Why should you care about human life? <clears throat> the answer should be fairly obvious. You're a human being, right? Hopefully, if you're sitting in this room, you're not from Mars or something like that. You are a human being. You have a human life. 
So life should be something that is important to us all. So how do we figure out what is, what, what, how do we deal with the whole topic of it? <clears throat> when it comes down to it, we all know that you are a unique thing. You are a unique created being with a unique personality, a unique history, and a unique story. And it should be easy to understand that if you are a human life, then you are valuable in that you just exist, in that you are you. And no one should then come and kill your life, right? Or you should not kill another life. Or to even go further, you should not kill your own life, right? This should be something that's great, easy. We all understand. Let's just move on, right? No, it gets even more and more complicated. We're going to begin this morning by talking about life and establishing the idea that life is, is sacred and life is something that should be promoted and we should promote the sanctity of all life. We're going to look at that at the Bible and then we're going to move on to three areas which it gets very difficult to talk about life in those areas. So, in the beginning, if you have your outline with you that you got in your bulletin, open it up. It's going to be a great opportunity for you to look at the passages of Scripture that we're talking about and follow along with us. Our first point, that the Bible tells us that human life is a sacred gift from God, and thus innocent life should not be taken. What does the Bible say about human life? In these three passages, which we're going to go through a lot, so we don't have enough time to read them all, but let me, look, let me talk about each one. The passage in Genesis establishes that we are a created thing. We are created people with the image of God created into us. So in that, we have value, and in that, we have worth. So much so that the passage in Exodus, which, small caveat, it should say, Exodus 20, not 12. That's clearly my fault. Um, Exodus 20, uh, verse 13, tells us that we should not murder, right? Because if God has, has created us, has given us a unique image, then we should not go out and murder and take that innocent life. Moving forward, then, how should we treat people? The passage in Luke, Jesus is instructing his followers that the way that they should treat people is that they should treat people with love. That they should have love for their God and that they should love each other. And that they should treat each other and love each other the way that they love and treat themselves. So there's this idea that is put forward as a foundation for us in the Bible that says we are created beings. Created with God's image. So that we should not take life from one another. Instead, what we should do is be loving everyone. Be treating everyone with dignity and respect. Let me give you a word picture of how this plays out, even on an ethical side of things, okay? You have a bunch of ethical thoughts and ethical ideas, right? And let's say that you have five light bulbs, right? And one bowling ball, okay? The light bulbs and bowling ball, all of them are ethical ideas or, or thoughts that you could have, right? Which one are you going to make the bowling ball? Because if you put one more important than all the other ones, that one bowling ball is going to probably end up breaking at some point the light bulbs. Let me give you an example of how we normally do this. Or you could do this, a silly example. Say you want to really hold on to the ethic that you are able to say curse words on Tuesdays. I don't know. A, does anyone have that thought process? No? I'd be random. I'd love to know. But say this is just a random thing, right? If you think this is it, 
This is like, this has to be at the center of my worldview that I can say curse words on Tuesdays, right? Then that becomes your bowling ball. And that is gonna, if it's put up against something else, like you should not say curse words at all or something like that, we'll just bowling ball and it will break that other thought. Let me give you some more realistic examples, okay? A lot of times here in America, what we say is that an exercise of freedom is the highest ethic. An exercise of autonomous freedom is the highest ethic. Well, if that runs into something like life, that all life is equal, and that all life should be promoted and dignified and not killed. Well, if your exercise of freedom runs into the light bulb of life, the light bulb's going to break. Is this making sense to you? Yes? So, I would argue that the ethic of sanctity of life, promoting life, has to be our bowling ball, so to speak. It has to be so important that when it matches up against other things, life wins, right? I really love to take my sword and go like this, and it's my exercise of freedom. Well, if I get in front of it, you're going to then violate the ethic of the sanctity of life, and that you should not take innocent life. And your ethic of being able to swing your sword like this is going to lose to the ethic of life. Yes? Are we on the same page? Okay, now we can move on. If that is what we have of, as our, our, our sanctity of life, then we can move on to three topics where it becomes incredibly difficult to flesh this out. The first one being the unborn life. What I mean by the unborn life is the fetus that exists within the womb of the mother. All right? Is that life? Let's beg the question in the beginning and just say, it is. We'll, go, we'll move on to the next one, but let's just, let's beg the question and say that the fetus within the mother's womb is a life. Now, you must assume, if all life is valuable and all life should be promoted and not taken, then what we should do is we should protect the fetus within the mother. At all stages of the pregnancy, no matter what the circumstances are, and no matter what circumstances brought about the pregnancy, if it is a human life, then we should promote it. Hopefully that's easy to see. And hopefully we don't go the opposite direction and say, even though it is a human life, we can take it because we feel like it. We'll get there in a second. But if it is a human life, I think it's pretty logically clear to see, biblically and logically, that we should promote and protect that life. Now, that's not what most people say, honestly. That's not really the argument that we're facing today in our society, in our world. And if we're trying to find common ground, uh, many, many people aren't necessarily latched on to that one, right? What they would say is the fetus within the, the, the mother's womb is not a human being is not a human being. Well, let me just talk through this just very briefly, and then we'll move on to what, what the Bible, the picture the Bible kind of paints of how we should be treating human life. At this point, let me ask you, how are you doing? Okay? Is everyone tracking along with us? This is a lot at one time. I pray that you stay tuned in because it, there's really awesome payoff and, and good things that we're doing here. So, at this point, is the fetus within the mother's womb a human life? Well, yeah, so the answer would obviously mean, yes, it is. Let's talk about how, right? So, in California, for nine months of the pregnancy, abortion is legal. So, in the nine months of the abortion, you are allowed to terminate 
the, uh, terminate the child's life via abortion in all nine months of, of pregnancy here in California. And then you have, start to have to ask yourself, when then does the fetus within the mother become a baby, become a human life which needs to be protected and sanctified, right? There are a couple f- options for us. One of them is that at the time of birth, the, human, the, the fetus becomes a human. At the time of birth, this would look like the, the, the child is growing within the mother and is not a human, not a human. The moment that it gives birth, it does become a human, and now it has the right, full rights to human life. This is a huge problem, though, because this line of thinking doesn't necessarily work. Because at birth, there's only two things that change for the ontological status of the fetus. And what that means is the essential being of the, the, the fetus, of the baby. The essential being that it is human, there's only two things that really change at birth. Those two things are a change in location and a slight change in dependency on the mother. Those two things do not speak to ontological status whatsoever. They really just don't. Because a thing can change location, no problem. A thing can change dependency. That doesn't change what the actual thing is. And you have a huge problem of saying that the minute before the baby was born, it wasn't a human. The minute it was after, it is because the status hasn't changed. You can then start to go backwards, right? Well, maybe the time of viability, the time where the child can exist or the fetus can exist outside of the womb. Well, this is going to be a huge problem too as well, because if you live in a rural country that doesn't have any medical supplies, the time of viability, the time where the fetus can exist outside of the womb, is something like seven or eight months. If you live five minutes from Chalk Hospital, it could be much sooner than that. So really, viability only really measures the technological advancements of the society in which you live. It says nothing about the status of the fetus. You could even go further back. You could look at brain activity. But even the fetus has the capacity to have brain activity. It's just, come on Wednesday, we'll talk more about this, but I want you to hear this. It's very difficult to pinpoint the moment in which a fetus becomes a human. The only time that it seems logical is at conception. Because if you follow the other line of thinking, you get what we have in Peter Singer, who's a professor and ethicist at Princeton, who says this, When we kill a newborn infant, particularly one that is severely handicapped, there is not a person's life who has begun or ever will begin. It is the beginning of the life of the person rather than the physical organism that is crucial as far as the right to life is concerned. Peter Singer would say that an infant newborn baby doesn't have a right to life till around six to eight months. In infanticide, killing the infant baby is no big deal. Because, he says, you're right. A fetus in the womb at eight months has no ontological difference than the infant at two months. And it's up to, if, if, you, don't, if you don't agree with that, it's up to you to prove them wrong. And it's very hard to. He says motor function, uh, being able to sense your surroundings, that might, that might be the start of a human person. So we have huge problems, huge problems. But come more on this on Wednesday. We as people have to decide if that is true, how are we going to in, in, engage with a society that says it's not true? How are we going to engage our loved ones? How are we going to deal with our own life? It's very difficult. Let's move on, though, to a happier topic. Let's talk about death. <laughs> um, death, right? Uh, not, uh, not as happy, but death, right? 
is another time in which life is in question and life has serious problems. And before I do, I, I forgot something. Before we do, I want you to go back. Look at uh, uh, the passages of Job, Psalms, and Luke. Again, it's, it's hard to really dive into all these things. But, but what those passages paint, the passage in Job, uh, paints a picture of Job thinking back at his life and saying that I was a human being when I was conceived. When, the day that I was brought about in my mother's womb, I was a human. The passage in Psalms talks about how we are knit together in our mother's wombs. The Bible paints a very different picture than what our society says, questioning the humanity of the thing inside of a woman. The Bible paints this picture that we are known, we are named, and we are created in the womb. So, moving on. Death. An equally happy topic, right? But an equally confusing topic. I'll just read you a quote to blow your mind in the beginning. There's a person named Mary Warnock, who's a British ethicist. She says, as people are getting older in their country, they are requiring more of the social services. They are requiring more and more care. She says, if you are demented, you are wasting the resources of the National Health Service, and you ought to kill yourself. What? (laughs) Pretty crazy. But if you put life lower than other things, if you remove it as your as your, as your prime thing in life, things start to, to stack up against it, and it's hard to see how you wouldn't and, and end at a conclusion like this. There's a Paralympian from Belgium who's fighting for gold right now. I think she's actually won gold in Rio. She suffers from a spinal problem, which creates pain in her life all the time. She's from Belgium, where euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is legal, and she's thinking that once she wins her gold and she starts to have more bad days than good, she'll kill herself. And it's heartbreaking. But you think about California, and physician-assisted suicide is now legal in California. And it's an option some people are taking. You have to ask yourself, why? What's at the core here? What's going on? Well, the core is that people are taking autonomy, a personal act of freedom, and they're saying that is of higher value than life. And there's two issues that seem to be going on here. One, if you are suffering, hurting, if you have a terminal life sentence and you are in pain, people say, well, it's more merciful to allow these people to die. That argument isn't really held by many people anymore because it is merciful to give people pain medication, right? If you have a splitting headache and you refuse to give someone aspirin, you're being unmerciful. But if you do give them aspirin, you're being merciful. And people say we can limit And it is true that we can reduce the amount of pain that people are in, and we should do that. We should find ways to do that. But to take it to the next level and to say that it is okay then for us to kill them is an entirely different thing completely, an entirely different thing completely. And you may ask yourself, well then, say somebody is on life support, and we remove the life support, have we just killed them? I would say no. And Dr. Scott Ray, I'll give you his argument. He says this, Killing and allowing to die are two very different things with very different intentions. Removing life support is allowing someone to die. If you are on your way to passing into the arms of God, right? And and you're moving that direction, and it's only machines which are inhibiting your ability to take the natural progression of life and pass on, Removing the machines, removing the intervention is only allowing the natural events to take place. That is not murder. That is not killing. What that is, is it's allowing to die. 
However, in the cases of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, that is not the case. The natural course of events is that you would keep on living to someday in the future where you would pass. And that's where the Bible intervenes and says in our passages here in Ecclesiastes and Hebrews is that the days you have are numbered and that God knows when you will go. And there's an appointed time to live and an appointed time to die. What physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia does is it says, forget about that. Forget about the natural way of things. Forget about what God has for your life. Take your personal freedom in your hand and remove life from yourself. Kill yourself. And that is somehow a merciful thing. Well, the biggest problem with this argument is you might think, well, that, I don't see a problem with that. The biggest argument with that is if you're going to give autonomy and personal freedom to the sick and the dying, you have to give autonomy and personal freedom to the young and the healthy. The 17-year-old in our high school group has to be able to commit suicide. And it should be praised as a personal act of freedom, something that just feels wrong. So there's massive problems. The last one, which we'll cover, is the defenseless life. The two passages there are Luke 10 and Luke 5. Stories of the paralytic man being lowered through the roof. Friends of his caring for him so much to not overlook him, but to put him in the, in the presence of Jesus. The story of the Good Samaritan, a man laid out on the side of the road. Jesus praises the person who helps them. And there's just two things when it comes to the defenseless. People who, who cannot function in our society, people who don't function very well according to social standards. You have to realize this, that ability is not required for dignity. You do not have to be able to take part in a good way in our society for you to be dignified as the status of being a human being. If social normality was a justifiable reason for mistreating people, we would be in serious trouble, right? If you were socially not normal and we were allowed to mistreat you for that, that would be very problematic for our society. If you are hurting, if you are unable to communicate, if you are unable to move, you have the same status as human and you should be cared for just the same. Look, these issues are incredibly difficult. They really are. And, and there's a lot of situations which are highly emotional and are highly difficult to move and process in, right? And we think, oh, it's easy when everything's in a vacuum and we can just talk about it on a Sunday. We understand that it's difficult. We don't want to think that it isn't. But here's the thing. Motivation. Being highly motivated to do something, whether it's an abortion, whether it's a euthanasia, whatever it is, being highly motivated to do something does not justify wrongdoing. It goes back to our dependency on truth and our dependency on the Word of God. That even though we are motivated doesn't mean we are justified. And at that point, we have to figure out what do we do? How do we interact with society? How do we have common ground if that's our core truth? Yeah, so as we have that sense of an ethic or a, a biblical foundation for that, we have to respond to it. And we would say then that Jesus calls us to be people who are actively investing in promoting life. Every life, no matter what the status or the state of that life is. And so basically all of that is just to say that we love and value life enough to do something. 
that we might think things about it, but we can't just think about it. We can't just argue with people about it. We have to actually do something about it. And so uh, I want to just go through some things that, that we can do. But first, before we would do that, I want us to look a little bit into how the world perceives us as Christians who say we value life. Uh, often, though, we are just, we are only perceived as people who value life when it comes to politics. And then after that, we don't care anymore about it. Now, um, something, just a place where I, I found some reactions to this was uh, on, this is, okay, so The Onion is a website that's a satire website, okay? Now, it's not, uh, it's, it's not just like, it's not a news site or something like that. I, I recognize that. But what was happening was, uh, I, I just think things are funny on it, so I follow it on Facebook. And in this case, they put out this video, and it was a video called Abortion, Myth versus Fact. And what it ended up being was it was totally not satire. It was just a hit piece on how pro-life people are, are like idiots, essentially. And so it went through and just pointed out and just hit hard on all these things. And then in the comments section, which is, you know, where all the, you know, the like high, uh, like wonderful speech happens, right, is where it is in comment sections. However, there's some telling things here that show us how people think about those who would say they are pro-life. First of all, here, fact, pro-life people walk over the decaying and starving bodies of homeless people to show up at a clinic to say all life is sacred. And then the next, and by the way, that gets 794 people agreeing and liking that statement. Uh, then the, the comment below it, hence the newer moniker, pro-birth. So saying that our pro-life view is actually not really pro-all of life, but just pro-birth. That people, that Christians stop caring once the baby is born. Uh, here's another one, the middle one says, myth, pro-birth people care about the baby that's being aborted. Fact, once born, pro-birth people offer no assistance when needed and demand women offer themselves as baby-making slaves when convenient. Uh, so here's, again, some ways that, that we might be perceived. Uh, again, this kind of middle one, what always enrages me is that so many of the pro-life politicians and their supporters are the same ones who refuse support for children born into poverty and mothers trapped in poverty. Such a double standard. Now, we look at that and we see all of this and we think, wow, you know, that's not what we think. And that's not how we want to be perceived, and that's not our heart. However, there's something where we're being perceived as only caring about how we vote on an issue rather than caring about actually doing something to help the issue overall. And you can see just that, that perception, and I think perception may not be reality, but however, we're Let's change that perception. Let's be people who say, okay, let's not be known as that. Let's be known as something more. So what can we do? How do we do this? Well, here's ways I think that we can actually do something. There's some steps that we can take. First of all, I want to say we respond in love. We respond with a, a loving heart and, and caring about people as humans and caring about the life of the person that is making a decision, the life of a person that disagrees with us. And, you know, with that, maybe, 
Maybe we should be in front of abortion clinics and picketing and protesting. That's not typically my, uh, you know, response to, to things all the time. However, maybe we should be doing that. But if we are to do that, uh, maybe we should be responding in a loving way with it. Like, for example, uh, some folks were telling me as they drive by, if you drive from Orange to here to Calvary on Tustin Avenue, you'll, pl- you'll pass the Planned Parenthood, and there'll be people out there protesting, right? And uh, you will see some that would do, where they would hold up these, like, gory, bloody, you know, aborted fetuses signs, and even some that are like, you're going to hell, you know, that kind of stuff. And then there's others that were holding up a sign that said, you know, how can we help you? We want to love you and serve you and help you. And, you know, these other different kinds of signs. And so maybe there's a different sort of way that we can do that. We can respond with love towards people. You know, like without love, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we are just this clanging gong or this clashing cymbal, right? That we're just noise to the world, I think, without love. And that's how it comes across. When we, when we argue and we fight for the, the right of life, and yet we have not love, it's just noise. So we have to respond with love in all things. First uh, John uh, 3.18, uh, yeah, 3.18 also says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So we have to respond in love, but love equals action, not just words. So our love has to be expressed with action. So I want to challenge us as people. If we value life, let's respond with our words, but also with actions. And the next thing we can do in this is we educate ourselves on all these issues that contribute to life or life not being valued. We want to learn. We want to grow in this. And part of that is there's uh, some book recommendations even on the back of your outline. Uh, There's a couple of those top ones are in the bookstore right now uh, that are by Dr. Scott Ray. Uh, And I really encourage you, if you want to learn more and you want to be challenged with this, to come this Wednesday night. Our conversation this Wednesday night is with, with this man, Dr. Scott Ray, who is not just an author and not just a professor of Christian ethics, but is also a leading medical ethicist for multiple hospitals. So he's doing this kind of work in the real world when it comes to unborn, when it comes to end-of-life issues. This guy is so smart with this, and so Doug and I are going to be talking with him. Doug is actually super smart, too. Uh, I mean, trust me, he really knows. <laughs> he really is. It's like amazing, actually. And so uh, Doug's going to be uh, talking about some of that as well. But we're able to, to ask any of these kinds of questions to him, and you guys will uh, have that opportunity. So encourage you to come to that. But to know and even understand the issues more of how surrounding issues affect abortion rates. Uh, for example, poverty. That, uh, like you even saw in some of those comments that they think Christians don't care about poverty, and we have to be people who care about poverty. Uh, 49% of abortion patients in 2014 had incomes of less than 100% of the federal poverty level, which is $11,670 a year for a single adult with no kids. That They make that much money. Half of the people that get abortions are at that kind of poverty level. So we have to address poverty. We know that somewhere, the, the abortions that were recorded or reported to the CDC, there's probably uh, tons more than that, but we're 700,000 in that year. 
So you imagine that 350,000 came from these situations of poverty. That if we can help address that, maybe we can help reduce the rate of abortions in our country through loving and serving those who are in great need. Uh, The next we say, yeah, we would vote. We vote according to our beliefs for what will most contribute to life. And we really care about that. And we should really care about that. But I would also say, if our value for being like for life ends when you leave the voting booth, you are not doing enough. We're not doing it right if that's where our value ends. If that's all we do, we can't just do that. And I would say we could probably even, you know, actually affect what's happening more in all of the ways that go beyond that moment. And so we have to really dig in and we have to care past it. We have to lovingly care for individuals who have made decisions that they regret. Uh, You know, I was talking to uh, somebody, a friend who works in one of these uh, like pregnancy clinics for these young women that can come in and, and receive some, some help and support, and, and they can talk through these issues. And they said that from, from multiple of these young women, they heard them say, wouldn't it be better for my baby to go to heaven and be with Jesus than to have to live in this broken world and this messed up life that I'm going to give my kid? And that's, you know, these... These people are, I want, I want us to see them as human beings who have real, like, hurts and thoughts and are, are, are scared and confused and wants, so many want what's best for that child, but are just so hopeless and confused. And so we have to help these young women. We have to be there for them and, and to help them before they make the decision and even help them after they would make that decision. And so then we also respond to the needs that cause people to not value life. And we we respond in some tangible ways. And what's so awesome is that today we have actual tangible things that you can do and be involved in to help with this whole issue of life in all of these different areas, whether it's unborn, whether it's defenseless or end-of-life issues. And you can see on this list on the screen that's in your uh, notes as well, these are tables in the lobby today of ministries that you can get involved in now to actually do something to help. First off, Obria Medical Clinic. This clinic where, these, where young women who are pregnant can come in and receive help. Safe Families for Children. Safe Families for Children is this amazing ministry that helps take in people's kids for a short amount of time voluntarily to help them while they're trying to get back on their feet in whatever issue that they might have in their life. And also then helps, which are typically like single moms, but are, are parents of, of all sorts and types, but helps them with the situations that they're in. You could consider foster care, adoption, or supporting others who are fostering or adopting uh, through our orphan care ministry. There's a table out there. You can serve children with special needs in our bridge ministry. You can serve with our retirement home ministry for residents with memory loss and to show value to people that are in that stage of life. You can serve when it comes to helping with poverty at that neighbor good uh, day here at Calvary that we're doing later on. And, and just many of the other reach local ministries that we have here in Santa Ana and around our county to help with issues of poverty and to share the gospel with these people. And so we want you to have ways that you can actually do something about this. That's our value. That's our heart that we could do something and respond to this. Let's not just 
talk about it. Let's not just vote about it, but let's value and love life enough to do something about it. Uh, so now, Doug and I want to just share with you like a couple stories from our lives of, of ways that this hits us personally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like we said, these things don't happen without reality. So we have two stories of reality of how this is happening in our life. With the strong conviction of, of life and loving life and, and valuing it, uh, my wife and I have invested in adoption and, and allowing adoption to be a way in which we enter into all of this. If we love and value life enough to do something about it, um, and then that has to actually look like something instead of just saying something. Um, and for years it was for us just, yeah, we think that a lot. And, and through circumstances of infertility and, and all of that, we've been opened up to the need that's out there. And we have one child who's in the process of being adopted. His name is Matthew. He's a wonderful little boy. Um, and entering into that circumstance with him and with the people surrounding him is incredibly messy. And even as of recently, entering into the adoption process again um, in new ways uh, and finding out that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And it's a big risk. And it's a risk with your finances. It's a risk with your time and with your emotions. But it cannot be enough to say that we love life, we value it, and we don't want things like abortions to happen. We don't want those things to go on. If we're going to be the, the type of Christ followers who enter into the problem, we're going to have to sacrifice, and we're going to have to risk. It's going to be messy. It's going to cost, cost us a lot. Um, for us, it's been a wonderful journey. It's been painful and exciting, and the, the kids who are adopted are the most wonderful people in the world, and we love them so much, but, it's, but it does, it requires a lot from you, but I think that's exactly what, what is needed, is it requires from us believers to, to step into the issues. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then for me, um, so a couple weeks ago, I did this already for service, but um, so a couple weeks ago, my mom passed away, and uh, it, was, it was crazy hard, and obviously, but, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's, and she had Alzheimer's for almost 10 years. She was in a care home for almost six years, and the last few years of her life, she was you know, like what you would not think was a quality of life. It was not a high quality of life. She couldn't speak. She, she couldn't speak at all. She would try and nothing would come out. She, could, she had no fine motor skills. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't walk. She couldn't go to the bathroom on her own. She couldn't bathe herself. Um, and, and that was, you know, really hard. That was really hard for, for us as a family. It was hard for her. And I think of this woman who was ocean kayaking at age 70 and traveling the world and really affected a ton of people's lives in these awesome ways. She's just sitting there, you know, for, like, for years, just sitting there. And I think that, you know, when we think about all this stuff, of this end-of-life stuff, and it's like, you know, that her life doesn't have value and that it should just be ended— you know, that, to me, I, I, can't even, I can't even fathom that. That my prayer, even in the midst of that, was that she could go home and be with Jesus, that, that she wouldn't have to suffer. But I, I just don't see how I could possibly be the one to make that decision. Or in the midst of that, that she could make that decision for herself. And that her life should just be ended. That her life would not have value. And I just, 
I think that we can't be God. We can't play the part of God. As much as it's hard to see people in positions in life that are, that are difficult or don't seem to have value, I think about my dad going every day for, for six years, every day, and spending a few hours with my mom, if, unless he was out of the country or something, he was there every single day. And I think that was him doing something to show that he valued life, you know, beyond anything else, that he loved and valued her life, no matter what state her life was in. And I think for us, we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged in that, of how we value life. And are we just talk or are we action? And are we responding in love when it comes to these sorts of hard issues? And so we want to encourage you today to respond, to say, I love and value life enough to do something. And so we're going to have some time of worship. We're going to have some time to, to pray about this and to consider. You're going to have some time that you can approach the stations and give your offering and take communion and remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross as he shed his blood and gave his body for us. You can pray. We'll have people available at these spots to pray with you about any of this. If if this is hitting you for any reason today in any way, we'd love to pray with you and for you. But to consider and, and what your response could be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for your love for all life. Lord, that you've created us in your image, God. That we bear your image upon us in some way that every life does. And that's an incredible miracle. And Lord, even those that we really disagree with, they also bear your image, God. And so I pray that we could love and respond to the world in a way that would really help all people value 